Well, many of you know, and uh, I like to talk about it, that's probably why many of you know that I had an opportunity to be a youth pastor for 20 years, and 11 of them right here in this area in Cary. And I have to say, those were 28 good years of life for me and for Diana. We thoroughly enjoyed our time working with middle school and high school students. And you know, I didn't know when I was preparing for ministry just how incredibly blessed I would be. I think sometimes when you prepare for ministry, you think, I'm going to go out, I'm going to serve people, I'm going to be a blessing to other people. And yet, those of you that have immersed yourself in ministry, you know that so often you receive a much greater blessing than even those that you're ministering to. And that was certainly true of my experience in in student ministry. And I, I would say probably one of the greatest privileges is now being able to be in the, the same area that I served as a youth pastor for 11 years and to start a church and to be able to still be involved with students' lives who I've known, some of them since they were just little kids. You know our director of administration, David Amon. I've known him since he was in the fifth grade, right? And now we entrust him with things that I'm thinking a fifth grader should not be responsible for that. But now that he's got a child, I realize he's grown up, he's mature, and Uh, And Adam was part of my student ministry. I was his youth pastor, and now to see him shepherding our kids is just an incredible privilege. And I have a lot of those stories for which I am just incredibly thankful to have been just a small part of uh, some of their lives. And one of those young men, Dima, why don't you come out here, you and Maria. One of those young men is Dima Kotick. Dima, I first met in, actually it would have been June, I believe, of the year 2000. When uh, Dima moved here from uh, Moscow, his dad had come a little bit ahead of him and came to meet with me and to tell me that his kids were moving and he wanted them to find a good church. I thought he was a Russian believer. A little did I know that he was not a Russian believer. Some American had just told him, if you want to get, have your kids have good friends, then send them to a church. And so his dad was there to tell me, you know, can my kids come here to church? And I gave him the gospel. He wasn't too interested at the moment, but as soon as Dima and his family got off the airplane. His dad made contact with me, and that next Sunday, I met Dima Kotick. And we spent about a year in a relationship as a pastor and as a student that would come every single week. A lot of weeks, Dima would walk to church, and he would sit, and he would listen to me speak, and afterwards, he would come up. He would argue with me about things that he did not believe. He would give me Iron Maiden CDs and tell me to listen to particular songs, and if I listened to those songs, I would understand who he was. You did that. You know you did that. You did do that. And um, a really cool thing, a year later, and maybe Dima will tell you some of this, a year later, Dima trusted Christ as his personal Savior. And I got to tell you, I tell people all the time, after 20 years of student ministry, it's my favorite story of all of them. It's my favorite story about how God reached down and pulled a kid to himself and uh, saved him. And just put him on a new path. And it wasn't too long after that that Dima said to me, I think I want to go back and plant churches. And I'm like, I don't think your mom and dad are going to like that. And soon after that, his dad came and met me and told me that he would never follow through on it. So not to get too excited. Hey, he did. He did. He went to Moody Bible Institute and graduated and then went to Dallas Theological Seminary and graduated was looking for a Russian-speaking wife. That was, a, that was kind of something that you had to have, right? He had to have somebody from that part of the globe. And, um, and God gave him Maria. And I hope you'll share a little bit about your story uh, there. We are just beginning the process of taking them on for support here at Northwest. 
And so as you give every Sunday, part of what you give will go towards this couple and towards their ministry. And uh, so we've invited them today to share with you, to tell a little bit about their story. And uh, Dima will also open up Psalm 131 to us here in just a few moments. So give a big warm welcome to Dima and Maria Coca. Amen. Amen. Good to have you guys. Thank you so much, Brian. Can you guys hear me? So, Can you hear me? Oh, yes. <laughs> my name is Dima Kotik, and this is my wife, Maria. This church is very dear to us. A lot of, a lot of you we have, I have known personally for a very long time. And, of course, Brian had had a profound influence on me as I was a youth, and a lot of things I learned from him I still carry. I was able to preach in this church about two and a half years ago, and uh, I gave a message, and at the time I was a single man. Things have changed. When I was going through missionary training with mission organization that I'm with right now, I met a pastor from Ukraine. I actually met pastors from all kinds of different places, and I kept in touch with them on Facebook. And this particular gentleman thought that it would be a good idea to set us up, to set me up with a girl from Ukraine, Maria. And I didn't know about her, but I saw her post uh, something on his wall on Facebook, and the chase was on. <laughs> I immediately knew I need to get to know her. And I didn't realize it, but about four months passed before I found out that this whole thing was a setup. At that, at that point, we were dating online, and um, I surprised her with a visit to Ukraine on Christmas. She didn't know I was coming. And after I met her on the third day, I proposed to her. And, uh, and she said yes. <laughs> you know, I thought she would either handle that or she could never live with me. So might as well. So <laughs> yes. Well, it's time to hear my, my side of the story. Uh, I was born into a non-Christian family and I went to public school and like regular Ukrainian public school. And my principal was a Christian, so she told all of our parents to buy Bibles, and she taught us Bible every week. So that's what my childhood looked like. And when I was 11, I went to church. At the age of 14, I trusted God as my Savior. And I went to university, and I started, well, I became a professional translator, and I worked with lots of missionaries. And after five years of studying, I went to Cape and Ray Bible School, and there I realized that I want to be full-time in ministry. So when I got back home to Ukraine, I thought, I don't know what to do, but I'm so happy where I am right now. I'm so happy to be single. I'm so happy to be in this, you know, not knowing what to do. So I started praying. And as far as single state goes, I was thinking, I just need a cat and I'll be fine, you know? <laughs> And if you don't know, Dima's last name in Russian means little kitten. <laughs> so when this guy added me on Facebook, I was like, I think I know him. Mm -hmm. So I added him, and I'm like, no, I don't know him. But I thought, <laughs> but I, thought I would, you know, leave him anyway. And then we started talking, and it was interesting that God basically showed me gradually through prayer and constant counsel with women who are my mentors, uh, I realized that this is God's will for me. And so 
I thought, okay, yes, let's go and minister together. And when he came over to Ukraine, I had no idea he was coming. And guess what? I didn't know that he was coming, but I knew he would propose. You know how? Two days after meeting him, I realized, okay, this guy is crazy. This is obvious. So I'd better prepare myself. You know, I react better when I prepare myself for something like that. So I thought, in case he proposes, just in case, I hope it doesn't happen, but just in case, uh, this is what I will say. And guess what? 24 hours later, he proposes. I'm like, thank God I was ready, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, that's basically what it looked like. And since that time, we've been pursuing being together, getting married, and also being in ministry in Dimabol. Tell more about it. Maria's going to help me run the PowerPoint. Yeah, since last time I was here, a lot of things have, have happened. I uh, was a candidate with the mission board as a single man, and of course, when we got married, our budget increased. So we've been traveling a lot, making a lot of new contacts with churches. We had some very unique opportunities to minister in this, in this time as well. We were able to go to Central Asia and work with an underground home church network, helping them train their missionaries just for, just for a little bit, just for a couple weeks. But while we were there, we met with a lot of the church leaders of that country and asked them, how can we serve you? How can we make a difference in your life? We don't want to come to your country and do something strange on the side that, that no one needs. And they didn't have to think hard about it. They said, the number one need in the country is pastors. There is a small evangelical presence there already, and they're very eager to preach the gospel. They're very good at evangelism. Muslims are coming to faith in very large numbers. A lot of times their conversion is confirmed by the appearance of Christ in a dream or a vision directly to them. They don't know that it's special. They think everyone gets to know Jesus this way. And they come to faith in very large numbers. In Iran right now, the church is growing very fast. Central Asia is not an exception. But once a group of believers gets together, they have to kind of figure it out from scratch, right? They don't know what the church is. Sometimes they have only one copy of the Bible and they start to learn from the very beginning what is the church supposed to be like. And in this capacity, we hope to serve them, to provide our skill set at their disposal to facilitate planting of a national church movement that will hopefully spill outside of Central Asia into other countries. When I was in seminary, on my last year, I got to know a pastor, and he was very persistent in recruiting me for work because at the time I was intending to return to Moscow, my hometown. And he told me about Muslims that are Russian-speaking in Central Asia that need Jesus desperately. And I wasn't so keen on going because I had other plans, but he served me tea every time, and so he was very persuasive. And then later I served Maria tea and uh, I was able to persuade her to join me. And if we speak about the world globally, Muslims make up a fifth of the population already. And it will climb up a little bit to 25% by 2050. How is the church going to respond? What is going to be the Christian answer to this new development? It falls on us, it falls on our generation to bring them the gospel. And the previous generations have neglected Muslims considerably. If we look at the missionary force worldwide, only 10% are devoted to ministry among Muslims. In our particular area, the percentage of evangelical believers is less than 1%. So we want to go there because this is the new place. This is the place where we feel like God is calling us 
and where he's already working long before we even got there. We're the first ones from our mission in this country and in that entire region. So thank you so much for praying for us. Thank you so much for giving us opportunity to speak and share the updates of our ministry. We'll be available after the service if you have any more questions. Also, our website is truthonly.com, truthonly.com. It has all the latest information and a lot more detail. And also, we're very easy to find on Facebook, obviously, and, and, and Twitter and YouTube. So uh, if, if you connect with us electronically, we can stay in touch. Please continue to pray for us. Today, God gave me a message that I think you will appreciate. It's a countercultural message that goes against the grain of what you have been taught from a very young age. But it's a very important message that every Christian has to learn sometime in their life. If you have your Bibles, please open it to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. You guys know that right now this, there's a biggest jackpot in the history of mankind the $600 million lottery. And there's only, I think, about 10% of tickets that they haven't sold yet. And so people are buying them left and right, hoping to win that $600 million lottery. And of course, people who know math and who know a little bit of how those things work, they realize that there's a higher chance of you getting struck by lightning than winning a lottery. But people still buy those tickets, and why? Because they're grasping on this dream that they have of how they're going to spend this money that they don't even have right now. What would you do if you had $600 million? Would you tithe some of it to your local church? That would be nice, right? Would you invest some of it to make a foundation that would support ministries worldwide? Maybe you would even build a hospital in Kenya. Maybe you would buy yourself a nicer car, right? Maybe you would move to a new place to live, a better real estate. Siberia has some great mountains. I would love to own one, right? You guys be, might be more keen on Hawaii or something or somewhere in the Caribbean. Maybe you would quit your job and go study uh, Renaissance art in Milan in Italy, something absolutely outlandish that you've always wanted to do, but you never had the opportunity to do that because you had other life responsibilities. Even if you've never bought a lottery ticket, you had those thoughts. Maybe when you were younger, maybe you were older. We like to imagine what we would do with resources we don't have. But you know what's interesting? That the lottery is really a metaphor for how our lives are structured a lot of times. We're always looking forward to that next stage, hoping to get a chance to break through, to reach this higher level of whatever it is, autonomy, education, income, whatever it may be. In high school, we'll look forward to getting into college, hopefully a good one. In college, we'll look forward to getting a job, hopefully a good one. Once we get a job, we'll look forward to getting that promotion, hopefully a good one, right? And once we get that promotion, we'll look forward to retirement. There's always like this next level, this next level. Psalm 131. The question is, what does the Bible have to say about our lives in this regard? about our dreams and ambitions. Let's read it together. A Song of Ascents by David. I made my own translation because I think it will be more helpful, so please follow with the screen. O Lord, do not let my heart be proud, nor do I dare to raise my eyes. I do not have great aspirations 
nor do I dare to imagine things too marvelous for me. But I restrained and silenced my soul, and my soul clings to you just like a weaned child clings to his mother. O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. This is the song of a sense. There's about 14 psalms in the Bible labeled this way. They were sung by people on their way to celebrate their national and religious holidays in Israel for thousands of years. That's why they're called Song of Ascents, because Jerusalem is highly elevated, surrounded by multiple valleys, and so from whichever side you're approaching, you will be probably hiking uphill. And as you would approach the city, coming from your village, bringing your offering, your sacrifice, looking forward to seeing some of your distant relatives for the holidays, you would see the city on a hill. Looking up, that city would represent the center of your universe. That would be your national security. That would be your national identity, the greatest place on earth as far as you were concerned. Of course, King David didn't have a temple. He had a tabernacle that he placed on Mount Zion in Jerusalem where he would come worship as well. And the highlight of his career is when he brought the ark into Jerusalem, dancing before it, for which his wife scolded him, right? You remember that. So the songs of ascent were sung at this time when you would be going up to Jerusalem. And maybe this was the song that King David composed that he sang even while he was approaching Mount Zion. It's a very curious song, especially if you look at the life of David. It's something rather strange to sing for a king. And we will see that he tells us what he does not do, then he tells us what he does, and then he will tell us what he thinks everyone ought to do. The first thing that he tells us is to restrain our ambition. Restrain your ambition. Do not let your heart be proud. Do not raise up your eyes. In the ancient world, everyone knew there's a certain protocol when approaching a sovereign when you approach the king. If it was a pharaoh or a great king of Syria or a great king of any ancient empire, there's only a certain way which you would be allowed to see him. And number one rule in seeing the king is you don't look at the king. You're not allowed to lift up your eyes and look at the king. And so if you had a request, if you for some reason had an audience with him, if he had a question for you, you may actually not even get a chance to look at him at all. Your posture would be on your knees, hands stretched out, face completely down, and you would not even see him unless he would tell you, you can look at me. That was the way in which you approached a sovereign. And King David says, when I'm ascending up, the hills coming to Jerusalem, I do not even lift up my eyes because I know that I'm coming into the presence of God. I do not let my heart be proud. I cast my eyes down waiting for God to tell me that I can look up. This is a Renaissance picture portraying the audience of Queen Esther before the great king Xerxes. There's a particular very interesting point communicated in this painting. Esther is king's wife. And if you remember in that account, 
for her to come to king without being called was a life risk for her. She could be executed for just wanting to see her husband. And even as she's in his presence, her eyes are downcast. She's not looking at him until he indicates to her that she can look up. King David, knowing this protocol, understood the significance of it, that in the presence of God, we don't get proud. Everything in us indicates submission. Our gaze is downcast. Our emotional state and our physical state represent humility and total surrender to the will of the sovereign. David does not let his heart get proud. This is what he does not do. He also tells us to embrace our dependence on God. Embrace your dependence on God. Let's read this together, the, the second verse. But I restrained and silenced my soul, and my soul clings to you just like a weaned child clings to his mother. My soul clings to you just like the weaned child clings to his mother. Of course, a weaned child is older, infant, that does not require breastfeeding anymore. So at that point, they get a lot more exploratory. They get a lot more independent. They can be a little bit away from their mother. Their mother can leave them alone for several hours without having to constantly be in their presence. And it's also interesting because an infant who is breastfeeding, he has to come to his mother just to survive because he has to get food from her. But a weaned child can eat normal food. They can digest things they find, you know, they can digest others. So they, all they do is just, they taste things, right? They pick up toys and they put them in their mouth because they want to see what they taste like. A weaned child wanders and becomes more dependent. He no longer requires the immediate presence of his mother. But even though he does not require the immediate presence of his mother, he chooses to be with his mother because he loves his mother, because there's a deeper connection between mother and child, that even though there's no longer a physical dependence on survival, there is a strong dependence of the soul, a strong connection. King David tells us that his soul clings to God like a weaned child clings to his mother. Even though he is an adult, even though he's even a king, he is very self-sufficient in many ways. But even though he's this way, he realizes that he is so dependent on God loves him so much that he chooses to cling to him. Now, it's interesting to watch what happens to children who leave their mother at the young age. There is this uh, whole class of children that are called feral children. Some of them are legends. Some of them are real stories. You may be perhaps familiar with Mr. Tarzan or Rudyard Kipling's Mowgli. There's about a thousand documented cases of when a child, because of a tragic accident of the death of their parents or something strange happens, they end up being separated at a very young age from their mother and they grow up in the wild with the wolves or with whatever animal finds them. They never become normal. They never learn how to speak. They mimic the behavior of the animals they were with. And any time that there was an attempt to take this wild child and 
bring him back to civilization, they could never recover. They would never be made right. They're handicapped to such a great extent that it's actually traumatic for them. This whole attempt even to be a part of normal society is impossible. They never mature because their brains don't develop past a certain level. They're very much like animals. A lot of us are kind of like spiritual feral children, aren't we? We may have gotten to know God and then just left him or created a distance between us and him and we don't communicate with him nearly as much so our spiritual level of development is on a level as if we were raised in the jungle by monkeys, right? King David tells us, cling to God, embrace, embrace your dependence on him. Ancient historian from Greece named Herodotus recounts a really interesting story about a pharaoh that was very curious in ancient times. He was very curious because he wanted to know what was the original language that people knew. Who was the first people? Because they, wanted, they thought that the Egyptians were the greatest race, the greatest nation that ever lived. So everyone must have spoken Egyptian at one point. But he wanted to find out. So what he did is he got two kids, a little boy and a little girl. And after they were weaned, he gave them away to a shepherd to raise. And he told the shepherd, he said this, don't speak to those kids at all. Keep them at your home and you can feed them, you can interact with them, but never say a word. But the moment they say something, record it immediately. And when you record it, you will know what language people always spoke, right? That was his logic. Of course, it, it, uh, it didn't work out really well because this is what happened. So those kids did not speak at all until they were seven. And they lived with this farmer, and he would take them uh, with him into the fields, and he would attend his sheep with them, and he would always have them around, and he would feed them and take care of them, but he never spoke to them, ever. And so one day, when they were seven years old, one of them said, Bleh. So Pharaoh decided that the original language was Phrygian, because in Phrygian, Beka means bread. What's the point of the story, right? Your soul requires communion with God. In order to mature, in order to grow up, in order to make sense of your life, to make sense of yourself, to find your identity, you have to be in communion with him all the time. King David says, I restrain my, and silence my soul, and my soul clings to you like a weaned child clings to his mother. Finally, King David tells us what he thinks everyone ought to do. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. In the psalm, this last verse breaks the rhythmic pattern of the previous two verses. So I suspect that it's a chorus to be sung as a refrain between the other two lines. This is the chorus to the song that sums up the point of the message. Place your hope in God. Now, it's very interesting that King David is the only person in the Bible that's called 
a man after God's own heart. And what's interesting about him is his life story. He deferred to God. He had many opportunities to overcome his enemies. He had many opportunities to take the throne. First book of Samuel tells us how in the cave one time and another time he found King Saul sleeping, that he had opportunity to kill his rival and take the throne, but he chose not to. It's very interesting. And I think the reason why is because to David, even though he was anointed as king, even though he was promised the kingdom, for him, his power and his position were secondary. He did not regard them as of high value. What he wanted the most was to be with God. And to him, that was his greatest reward, his greatest hope. For everything else that he would get to do will come around in due time. God will grant him authority and power in time. If David would have taken matters into his own hands, he would have ended up just like King Saul. And here we have an image. This is King David. And he was out on patrol with his men. By the way, keep in mind that this guy has been hiding out in the desert for many, many years. And he finds, with his patrol, he finds the vanguard of Saul's army. And there, Saul is sleeping on the ground. And one of his mighty men, Abishai, hands him a spear and he says, we can end this right now. Grab the spear, stab this guy. He, no one would even realize what happened. You know, they would run away before anyone would wake up. You have this great opportunity. But King David, he, his hope was placed in God. He didn't take any shortcuts because he didn't know how, but he knew that one day King Saul would be deposed and one day he would be made king. Hope is not passivity. Hope is not deference, right? Hope is a motivator. But it also motivates us towards a goal of some kind, right? For King David, his goal was never achievement. His goal was always God. And all his actions were motivated because his hope was placed in God in such a way that his entire life he wanted to honor God. And in this particular way, he honored him very well. Let's read the psalm together. A Song of Ascents by David. O Lord, I do not let my heart be proud, nor do I dare to raise my eyes. I do not have great aspirations, nor do I dare to imagine things too marvelous for me. But I restrained and silenced my soul, and my soul clings to you like a weaned child clings to his mother. O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. In America, they tell you from a very young age, you can be anything that you want to be. You can become anything that you want to become. You can attain anything. Okay? Napoleon thought he would take Russia one day. 
there are some things you won't get to accomplish. You know, in, in Russia, they would tell us, you're going to be a great cosmonaut one day. Some dreams, they never come to fruition. And it doesn't mean that you have to give up and never try anything. But listen to me out. Listen to it clear. Your number one dream ought to be fellowship with God and unity with Him. Give all your dreams to God. Don't dwell on things you don't have, things you strive for, because you will miss that all along God is there for you, desiring your soul, wanting to be with you. I have here a lottery ticket that I bought in a grocery store. It represents the crazy fantasies we might have that may be too marvelous for us. Right? We want to start a company. We want to do whatever, whatever it is. We want to, sometimes we dream for things for our children even, right? Because some things we didn't get to do in our lives, so we, we place expectations on them. This lottery ticket is a chance that that might come true. And it, it might as well. Sometimes those things do happen. But please realize that there's higher chance of getting struck by lightning than for this ticket to be worth anything. So I'm going to tear it symbolically to represent that my dreams are not in gamble, not in monetary gamble, not even in a life gamble, but my dreams I am giving to God. Okay? Don't gamble with your life. Don't reach for things that are immediate and then they disappear. Reach for things eternal. Place your hope and affections into God alone. Let's pray. Dear God, help us to learn from King David. Help us quiet our spirit down and submit to you in every area of our lives. And to cling to you like a child clings to his mother. Lord, help us honor you in all our ways, in all our thoughts, and even our aspirations, Lord. And trust you that what you have prepared for us, you will grant in your time. Amen.